Welcome to the New Testament Review, where every episode we discuss a classic piece of New Testament scholarship. I'm Ian Mills. And I'm Laura Robinson, and we are PhD students in New Testament studies at Duke University. Today we're going to be discussing Elizabeth Schussler Fiorenza's In Memory of Her, a feminist theological reconstruction of Christian origins. Laura, what is this book about? The project of this book is to recover the story of women in earliest Christianity, in, in early Christian history. Fiorenza is doing a feminist historical construction project and is starting from the idea that the role of women in a lot of history has been written out or suppressed or neglected, and we need to pay special attention to the text in order to find out where women have been at work. The sources and methods that we use to do history are inherently androcentric. The tradition in the text of the New Testament have been handed down primarily by men and through male authority structures like, you know, the church. But we know that this can't be a complete record of the role of women in Christian history that we have because we know that women are active agents in history and we see glimpses of them in the New Testament text. So in order to recover a non-androcentric history of early Christianity that pays attention to the role of women, we have to approach the text we have with more skepticism and assume that there is a story about women lurking in there that we might not otherwise see and might actually be actively written out. So there's a quote from her that really captures this point well. She says, quote, Androcentric selection and transmission of early Christian traditions have manufactured the historical marginality of women. So the logic of her argument is concise, easy to summarize. She says, we know that women have agency, have played active roles in history, and men have controlled the transmission, even creation of these documents. So we are justified in going in and reconstructing the suppressed voice, role, agency of women in history in spite of these texts. It's also important to note that what Fiorenz is doing here is not trying to recover this idealistic egalitarian period in the, his, in the history of the church as much as she's looking for the early vision of the church, which she did see as fundamentally egalitarian. Um, it com- becomes a little hard to find out in her book whether or not she's actually always doing this, but this is the project that she lays out for herself in the early chapters of the book. Right. Not totally clear she stays consistent on this point. The episode in the New Testament from which this book gets its title, In Memory of Her. Uh, This is the anointing of Jesus. She points out that in the Passion narratives, especially the one according to Mark, there are three disciples who play an important role. There's Judas, who betrays Jesus. Peter, who denies and abandons Jesus, and an unnamed woman who anoints Jesus prophetically. There's this great line that her name is forgotten because she is a woman. So some of you may be thinking, what disciple? What disciple prophetically anoints Jesus? Well, that's exactly what we're talking about. There's a story that is told in all four of the Gospels about a woman who brings perfume or ointment to Jesus and pours it on him. And the story is told very differently in each Gospel. In the Gospel of Mark, this happens right before the Passion narrative. It's a lady who comes into the house where Jesus and his disciples are gathered. She takes this very expensive ointment and she pours it on Jesus's head, which is an allusion to the Old Testament practice of anointing a king. You you might remember that Samuel anoints David, for instance, or anoints Saul. This is a thing that the woman does to indicate that Jesus is the Messiah. 
the disciples don't understand what she does. And then Jesus rebukes them and praises the woman's actions. So this is the story that Addison is first told in Mark and it's told quite similarly in John. It's important to note that at this point that there is no mention of her being a sinful woman in the gospel of Mark. In contrast, the gospel of Luke introduces her as a sinful woman of the city and then eroticizes the entire narrative. She lets her hair loose, which- Extremely erotic. And washes Jesus's feet. Conventional erotic symbols or body parts in antiquity. She also kisses him, which is not in the other ones. Right. So we have the transition here from a faithful disciple who is getting Jesus right. The disciples are misunderstanding that. Being transformed in a later gospel, rewriting the story into... It seems to be, <laughs> yeah, it seems to be some kind of sexual sin. The way, the way the whole story is framed and sexualized. We have a faithful disciple whose name is forgotten, gradually transformed into an eroticized sinful woman, completely losing sight of her disciples in the traditioning process of the church. And Luke also it makes the story one about forgiveness and not one about Christology. Uh, Luke's narrative is not closely associated with the passion and it ends with the uh, the parable that Jesus tells about one who is forgiven much, loves much. Uh, the reason why the woman loves Jesus is because of all these massive sins she's committed and Jesus forgives her anyways. Fiorenza somewhat idiosyncratically suggests that John here preserves the oldest tradition in order, I think, to recover the woman's name. But her account of androcentric traditioning actually works better if, with the majority opinion, we take John to be the latest form, because in John, once again, we have, well, we have a name being assigned to her, which isn't exactly relevant, but is something which Sanders has shown happens as the tradition develops. But more importantly, we lose sight of the anointing aspect. Instead, again, she washes his feet. Yeah. Another example that Fiorenza calls on is the resurrection appearances in the Gospels. If you're familiar with the resurrection account in Paul, you'll notice that Paul's story of the resurrection doesn't include any resurrection appearances to women. The first one is to Peter, and then James, and the Twelve, and then last of all to Paul. There's some sort of theological significance in the order in which it happens. And uh, which, and this is not how it goes in the Gospels at all. This is not how it goes in Matthew and John, where there are resurrection appearances to the women immediately at the tomb following the resurrection. So the argument goes that as Fiorenza reconstructs it, there are these early traditions about women being the first to witness Jesus. And then when Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 goes to list the resurrection appearances, and he's making a point about the order in which Jesus appeared is an order of importance. Of course, the women are not mentioned. So if you think the Mythian traditions are really early in pre-Pauline, uh, this is a really good illustration. The problem is these, of course, aren't found in Mark. Scholars like Nayrink have suggested that Matthew is developing this out of the Gospel of Mark, and I think there's actually really good arguments to suggest developed expanded passion and resurrection narratives are sort of apologetic and theologically motivated and prophetically motivated expansions of the Gospel of Mark. And so maybe it's not safe to say that these are actually pre-Pauline traditions being suppressed. Laura and I are actually more persuaded by another explanation. Yeah, so Ross Shepard Kramer has an interesting interpretation of the discrepancies between the gospel accounts of the resurrection and Paul's. She takes Paul to be the earlier account, the resurrection, you know, that were the first appearances to Peter and then on through the 12. And uh, she also thinks, though, that the reports of the bodily resurrection of Jesus in the empty tomb are actually later than the, the account we see in Paul, which, of course, would invite the question, why is this the first time 40, 40 50 years after the fact? 
fact that we are hearing these stories. And uh, Kramer says that this is where the introduction of the women comes into play. The reason why the women are described as the first people to see Jesus' resurrection to explain why it took so long to tell this story. That in Mark, the women are afraid and run away and don't tell anybody. And in Luke and Matthew, the the disciples are skeptical of the women speaking. So actually, the fact that women in antiquity might not have been believed or, you know, in Mark, just don't tell anybody at all becomes a way for the author to explain why it took so long for these empty tomb narratives to show up. It's a quasi-discovery narrative of the sort that we have in other early Christian texts that are pseudepigraphical. Yeah, so in light of the fact that the church started off so egalitarian, how did it become the church that we know now? Well, there's two models that Fiorenza throws out as possible explanations for how the church became the way it is, how it fell from its grace as an egalitarian uh, organization to the organization we know now. The first one she talks about is what she calls the sociological model, which is that as a prophetic, messianic, or millenarian movement becomes sustainable and becomes something that could actually be passed down from one generation to the next, it inevitably takes on the traits of the society around it so that other people will be attracted to it and the movement can actually be preserved. So the first generation of Christians may have practiced very radically egalitarian things, but as the movement expanded and put down roots in a city, if it was going to survive, it had to look more like the society in which it was born and became more patriarchal. The other model is the heretical orthodox model. Uh, heretical groups in the early church who took a negative view of the body, negative view of creation, rejected the significance of the body, distanced themselves from the household roles and things like propagation and families. And this, for the role of women, would be liberative. And it's also worth noting that we have early Christian texts which seem to uphold the significance of women in the earliest Jesus movement against what seems like ciphers for the proto-Orthodox groups, which are clearly patriarchal, so Gospel of Mary, Gospel of Philip, texts which hold up Mary Magdalene and her other early Jesus followers for women. So anyways, this model suggests that because women were elevated in heterodox groups, orthodox groups reacted against that and re-inscribed contemporary patriarchal values and structures. Schusler Fiorenza is going to critique both of these models, and yet we both think she slides back into these two models, especially the first one, which we're going to discuss again later later. Yeah, so let's move on to section two, which is when Fiorenza actually starts to get into the tradition and into the text of the New Testament. She starts with the Jesus movement and points out something that's really important to talk about when we talk about Jesus and feminism. There's been a historical tendency by Christian feminists to identify Jesus as sort of this like arch feminist who uh, starts out the Christian movement and try to make Jesus look more radically egalitarian and more feminist by comparing him positively with the Judaism of his day. That Judaism was deeply patriarchal and oppressive, and Jesus springs from this and throws all that off. Judith Perkins and A.J. Levine have both been instrumental, showing that whenever Christians want to say there was something good about Jesus, they invariably end up demonizing Judaism. That if Jesus did anything good, anything liberative, if he taught anything which we today think is morally praiseworthy, then Judaism must have taught the opposite in order to bring Jesus into relief. And this obviously is, I mean, it's historically unconscionable, and it's also reeks of an un-Jewish, somewhat anti-Semitic reconstruction of Jesus. And what Fiorenza wants to bring out is the fact that Jesus didn't overcome the patriarchy of Judaism to become a feminist. He found something feminist that was already existent in Judaism and brought it further to light. 
The irony, of course, is that in some ways, uh, Fiorenza really does contrast Jesus with the Judaism of his day. Fiorenza identifies Judaism of Jesus' day as being messianic, in that there was this uh, this great hope for God's intervention uh, into the world to overcome the unjust imperial structures of uh, of the day and to put Israel and its people right back in its proper place again. This is very familiar for people who are interested in the idea of like salvation historical models of theology. But what Fiorenza identifies is that Jesus, in contrast, actually taught less that the kingdom was coming imminently in the future, but that it was already radically present in the community among them right now. In one way in which this was evidenced was in the equality between men and women, that Jesus' millennial movement affirmed women and men as equals and gave them equal rights to be disciples and, and learners uh, in the community. Laura and I could both spend a half hour just talking about issues with her method of reconstructing the historical Jesus, but in doing so, we would focus on things that aren't important to Schusler Fiorenza, and we want to avoid doing that. Um, so she doesn't spend her time laying out a methodology, doing source-critical analysis, and so for us to critique that would really be inappropriate and wouldn't be a good summary of what she is trying to accomplish. So let it just be said <laughs> that Schusler Fiorenza places a lot of emphasis on Q being the earliest source for reconstructing the historical Jesus. That is where Matthew and Luke share a tradition that's absent in Mark. Furthermore, she consistently uses the Lucan form of Q, which is the most realized eschatology. So she consistently finds a realization of the eschaton and not someone prophesying a coming kingdom. We'll have lots of episodes discussing the historical Jesus and source criticism and all the methodological issues surrounding this. So we won't be discussing that issue further today. Just realize that what we are getting in her reconstruction is a very realized Jesus of the Gospel of Luke, who sees Jesus as preaching that the kingdom is put into practice in the church and in the person of Jesus himself, not anticipating a judgment to come. It's also really important that part of this is that Fiorenza understands Jesus as being not primarily a social critic or someone who has a broader plan for how to dismantle patriarchy within the wider world. Patriarchy is just some that is not existent in his own community, and it's a thing that people live into around Jesus. So what makes Jesus distinctive for Shusa Fiorenza is placing the people as the locus of God's power rather than or over against the institutions of Judaism. So she argues that instead of placing emphasis on ritual purity or the temple or rites and practices, she argues that Jesus instead saw in the holistic human life of each individual as where and how God would bring about the kingdom. So one way to illustrate this is the Sabbath controversy, where Jesus says humanity is not made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath for humanity, here taking the reading of Son of Man to refer to people in general, which is of course a perfectly appropriate and I think actually correct way of reading that phrase, especially in this particular story. So the argument, she says, is that Jesus says we should be paying attention not to the right, first and foremost, but to human well-being that the right is supposed to complement. Which, as Laura indicated, may be playing into the same contrast. The same contrast between Judaism and Jesus. Which is not to deny that Jesus did anything distinctive. He right. certainly did. But to fully analyze this, we'd have to be attending to some things that Schusler Fiorenza isn't concerned with. So we're going to move on. So back to Fiorenza. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so what, one aspect in which we really do see Jesus's radical egalitarianism is in his anti-family teachings. And this is something that I think it's really important for us to note that might not be intuitive for us is that to be egalitarian, 
egalitarian in the ancient world is really to be anti-family. The more women are removed from and free and frankly liberated from uh, the structure of a patriarchal family with a paterfamilias and a in the responsibilities of child rearing and have the more women are outside of that, the more autonomy and agency they have. And Jesus is actually very radically anti-family in the Gospels. We in er the earliest stratas of the tradition, we have him telling people to leave their homes, leaving their children, uh, leaving their land. He predicts interfamily strife uh, within uh, within his community and creates this new family basically around him being part of a family where he has brothers and sisters and mothers within his community, but also no fathers, you might notice. Mark 3, 33 to 34, this is a great little glimpse into this. Jesus's mother and brothers are outside calling him and Jesus says, no, the people in here who are listening to me, they're my mothers and brothers and sisters. So sisters seems to indicate that there are women there following Jesus and acting as his disciples. And also this father figure, the authority figure that would normally be at the center of a patriarchal family is in fact absent. A big problem with seeing Jesus as primarily a voice of the wisdom of God who teaches this radical anti-family egalitarian message is it's really hard to explain in light of that how Jesus ends up on a Roman cross. A lot of times this is seen as, you know, Jesus running afoul of patriarchy or running afoul of, uh, you know, the family values of his age. But then that gets us to a Jesus who was killed by concepts and not by people. You can't get the death penalty in an ancient Roman court for saying that women should leave their homes and travel around with Jesus. Like, that's not an executable offense. Jesus must have done something that directly threatened the Roman state in order to be executed for sedition. On Schuster Fiorenz's account, Jesus seems to be killed for being nice. And you sometimes get this in preaching today and things like that, that Jesus was just such a great person that they had to kill him, which doesn't make a lot of historical sense. Another note on Jesus' death in particular and Fiorenz's general approach. The book is full of these sweeping categorical assertions about what Christianity is or is not. That, as someone skeptical of the very project of biblical theology, I find kind of troubling. On page 130, she says, quote, the death of Jesus was not a sacrifice, but brought about by the Romans. Right, sure, except no one who affirms that Jesus' death was sacrificial would deny that the Romans killed him. Since no one has ever suggested that someone literally killed Jesus as a cultic act, it's not really clear what or who she's arguing against. She admits that for some Christians, Jesus' death quickly came to be understood as a sacrifice, but she wants to assert that it just isn't. I admit that I'm only really interested in the former question, how Christians came to understand it, what Jesus' death meant for particular people, how it was understood, including by his contemporaries. But honestly, I don't even know what it means for her to argue that it wasn't a sacrifice, period, full stop. I would, of course, have the same objection against someone who simply asserted Jesus' death was a sacrifice. I want to ask for whom? There are other sweeping theological assertions in Schusler Firenze that I find equally baffling, but I think I would have this problem with much of constructive theology. This is a problem with making statements about the reality of theological interpretations of the Jesus traditions. Yeah, I think that the, the issue here is, and I don't think this is, I don't think this is inherent to all theological projects that are born from New Testament historical criticism. A lot of times in this book, there's not a clear distinction between what's a historical assertion and what's a theological assertion. So a great example of this is, you know, what you were just talking about, the idea that Jesus was not killed as a sacrifice, he was killed by the Romans. There's no reason why those have to be in contrast with each other, because the sentence Jesus was killed as a sacrifice is fundamentally a theological claim. And saying that Jesus was killed by the Romans is fundamentally a historical claim. They're making claims about very different kinds of knowledge. 
one is how Jesus' death is understood by his followers, and one is about why he was actually killed in the course of ordinary history. Have you ever met someone who thinks Jesus' death was a sacrifice who denies that Jesus was killed by the Romans? No, absolutely not. <laughs> I mean, the author no. of the Gospel of Peter, yes. Let's move on. Yeah. At one point, Schuster Fiorenza, page 120 actually, wants to acquit Jesus of ethnic particularism, and she makes this argument that all groups in Greco-Roman antiquity were exclusivistic, not just Judaism. She has a problem with Jesus's, the traditions about Jesus that seem to say he was only there to speak with Jews, the Syrophoenician woman who's dismissed as a dog, that Jesus came to speak to the children of Israel. The problem is her response that all Greco-Roman expressions of religion are exclusivistic is exactly wrong. Yeah. Um, this is something that's really unique to Judaism and Christianity, that they are exclusivistic. A, a, worshiper of, a worshiper of Zeus has no problem if you're part of the Eleusinian mysteries. There are no other cults in antiquity that I'm aware of that say you must be part of us and us alone, and from us and us alone, you get all of your philosophical ethical commitments. This sort of totalizing discourse is something that's really unique to Judaism and Christianity. And to say that this is true of everything, so we can't blame Jesus for being this, I, I it's just not right. Yeah, yeah. Or Jesus's anti-Gentile statements in the Gospels. Yeah, yeah. Again, like that's doesn't that maps onto Judaism, but it doesn't map onto broader Greco-Roman culture. The, the the distrust between Jews and Gentiles, like that that's characteristic of some things Jesus says in the Gospels, and it's characteristic of some strands of Judaism, but not all of it. It's just it's not something that we can if we can attribute to most people in the ancient world and therefore quit Jesus of having any sort of exclusivist tendencies in his teaching. Right. Um, this brings us to chapter five, where Fiorenza gets into the story of Paul in the Pauline mission. Um, and there's not a ton of reconstruction that needs to be done in these letters as much as there just needs to be adequate attention paid to the role of women in these texts. And also, frankly, some of the modern ways in which women have been written out of the story. Uh, women are all over the Pauline letters, but sometimes they're treated in ways that are a bit dismissive by historians or even translators. Uh, one of the best examples of this is Phoebe, who carries the letter of the Romans. If you have an English translation, you might see Phoebe being called something like a helper or a servant, but what she's actually called is diakonos, which is often translated as deacon. It's the same word that Paul uses to describe himself and his co-workers. There's really no reason to think that Phoebe occupies some lower rung of authority or teaching ability than everyone else Paul works with. Also discussed in this chapter is the figure of Thecla. Tertullian says that Thecla is cited as grounds for female preachers and Baptists by groups that he obviously dislikes, even though our surviving text of Thecla contains no sermons and only has self-baptism already. That recovered text evinces the sort of suppression and androcentric traditioning that other texts do. Thecla has been rewritten, oriented around Paul, and some of these subversive aspects have been suppressed. This text still evinces this really important early Christian female leader being used in other ways by other Christians. It still shows a very early Christian memory of women being very active on the missionary circuit and being active in church leadership. Totally. Um, and this is a really good example of Fiorenza sort of betraying her own project in some ways, that this is not an example of an early Christian ideal vision. This actually does indicate a more egalitarian part of the Christian past that has been lost. Yes, absolutely. Chapter 6 deals with Paul's letters, which begins with Galatians 3.28, reading, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So Schussler-Fiorenza argues that this is a pre-Pauline formula, because all Paul is interested in here 
in the course of his argument is the neither Jew nor Greek aspect of this formula. So she suggests that the rest of it is from Paul's earlier usage or maybe a tradition he received. But the point is that this is a vision of radical egalitarianism, neither male nor female. Then she has to reconcile this with the other texts in Paul, particularly the 1 Corinthians text, 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Corinthians 14. She notes that 1 Corinthians refers back to this exact same formula, but does not mention the male or female part. She goes on to argue that this does not mean that Paul has rejected this formula, but is adapting it to fit his situation. We have this pre-Pauline, radically egalitarian understanding of what it means to be male and female in the church. And this kind of runs up a little bit roughly when we see 1 Corinthians 11 and Paul's arguments about head coverings in the church, that he wants women who are practicing their pneumatic gifts to wear head coverings and not to have their hair undone or uncovered or whatever. So her argument is that letting your hair loose was an expression of what she calls pneumatic frenzy. It was how one indicated that you were a female visionary or oracular figure. This is associated with the cult of Isis, she argues, and other Greco-Roman groups. So it's a sign of spiritual liberation and maybe a drawing on numbers of sexual liberation or even adultery. And so Paul, according to her argument, is addressing a specific situation. He's not going back against the egalitarian vision of Jesus so much as he's speaking into this particular situation in the city of Corinth and saying, you shouldn't be imitating these ecstatic, pneumatic groups. Mm -hmm. Part of the problem with this analysis that she flags already, she's very aware of this, is that Paul doesn't say he's addressing a specific particular situation. He appeals, rather, to Genesis. He appeals to the creation and says that man was made in the image and glory of God, but women were made for the glory of men. He makes this appeal to creation for the subordination of women. And she wants to argue, um, 1 Corinthians 11, 11, that Paul doubles back on himself and says, no, actually, neither women nor men by creation are better than the other. But the total takeaway for her, and she explicitly says this, is that Paul thinks he has a weak argument and is giving as many different kinds of arguments as possible and doubling back on himself and a little bit confused, which, you know, is totally possible. Uh, there are definitely places, I think, where Paul loses the train of thought or has to redouble or is stacking up arguments because he's insecure. The question is, is that what is necessarily going on here? And does that break away from Paul's appeal to creation? Not as a normative vision for Christian practice today, of course, but as a way of understanding the historical Paul. And what we see in post-Pauline texts, Fiorenza, with the majority of scholars, takes Colossians and Ephesians as post-Pauline. We see more and more this tendency to do what, what Fiorenza calls the sociological model of an organization becoming patriarchal, as this original vision of this radical, pneumatic egalitarianism is lost, and as, um, as an apologetic move in order to be more attractive to potential converts or also potential persons Executors. The church becomes increasingly more like the Greco-Roman world around it and organizes around the paterfamilias-centric household where women have very traditional roles at home, children have very traditional roles at home, the institution of slavery is maintained, and so on. So we're running out of time here, yeah. but this is the third section of her book where she brings out a bunch of evidence of Greco-Roman authors talking about eccentric groups that they don't like, religious cults and movements that they're criticizing. And one of the tropes is this 
liberated woman who leaves her family behind and becomes a leader and a powerful figure in this movement, and so is breaking apart what is the atom of social structure. And Sounds a lot like the early Jesus movement, <laughs> really. Right, exactly. <laughs> we have evidence of this from all sorts of different kinds of Jesus texts. Justin Martyr, in a second apology, talks about a case that fits this movement exactly. Some of the martyr acts talk about this. Paul and Thecla yeah. talks about this. Paul and Thecla is the well, story of this. Yeah. The Diary of Perpetua, who was a woman who had a son who she abandoned to be raised by her parents in order to die a martyr's death in the arena. Shusafirin's argument is that the household codes we see canonized in Ephesians, Colossians, the pastoral epistles, and 1 Peter are one side of an argument within Paulism. And... It is particularly the side of the argument that took the non-radical, non-egalitarian view, but rather accommodated themselves to socio-political norms, to the sorts of standard expressions of family relationships and social structures that were practiced by contemporary Jews and pagans, and that, of course, is patriarchy. Before we finish up, I do want to say I actually really do like a lot of the project of this book, even though you've heard a lot of criticism from us today on specific points. Generally speaking, I think the assumptions with which Fiorenza goes into this project are basically true. That women were very active in the early church, but the memory of them has been lost because of the fact that these traditions are handed down not by those women, but by men and an authority structure that is becomes increasingly invested in reproducing the patriarchy of the surrounding world. I think on that point, Fiorenza is basically right. I just think that sometimes she loses the thread on uh, what she considers to be more historically reliable. Yes, exactly like Vreda. I think <laughs> what the takeaway from Fiorenza is methodological, and it's a way of looking at the traditioning process. It's a way of approaching these texts that I think is incredibly valuable and right. And exactly like Vreda, we both have some issues with particular ways of reconstructing and explaining it. But Vreda got us to see the literary constructedness of the secrecy motif and the theological motif that run through the gospel. And I think Chusa Fiorenza should get us to see the androcentrism that's built into these texts via being redacted, composed, and passed on by patriarchal men. Yeah. And I also think that th this project in itself draws attention to the ways in which androcentrism is still produced by the modern university and by the modern church when we do approach these texts. Uh, we talked about the translation of Diakonos early in this. If you start looking for evidence that women are sometimes carelessly dropped out of the tradition or uh, scholars tend to approach their work with a very androcentric worldview governing their decisions, I think you start seeing it really clearly when you start looking for it. And I think Fiorenza does a great job drawing our attention to it. Google Junior the Apostle. But anyways, thank you so much for joining yeah. us for this episode. I really enjoyed this book, and Absolutely. I hope uh, I hope you guys take a look at it. Please stop here. Leave us a review. It's easy. Open your podcast app, find our show, scroll down, hit five stars. More people will find us. Leave us a positive review, though. Yeah. You can only leave five star reviews. You can find more about us um, on Twitter at Newt, N-E-W-T, review, or email us at NewTestamentReview at gmail.com. Thanks to Mitch and Luke and all the guys from Carnegie for letting us use their song Coming Home in the intro and outro music of the podcast. You should check them out. Home for